You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the special edition of the show. Today I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Michael Heiser, who for many of you will need no introduction. He appeared recently in the film I did called Ancient Aliens Debunked, and he is a scholar in the fields of biblical studies and the ancient Near East. A lot of us know him from his work on the ancient astronaut theory. He is the guy behind the website SitchinIsWrong.com, and he's done a whole lot of work in that regard, various articles, presentations at conferences that can be viewed online. So he's been a very prolific writer, and he's a is a prolific blogger, including uh, subjects like the Naked Bible, which has just started a spinoff podcast, which which is available at the Revelations Radio Network. But today we're going to be talking about the re-release of his book, The Facade, which covers a whole lot of subjects in the in the UFO lore, which is something that he's been interested in for a long time, and we'll talk all about that including subjects like the Roswell incident. We touched briefly on crop circles, so stay tuned for that. I think it's also a good interview because he gets to sort of reflect on his work over the years and the kind of impact that it's made. So I encourage everybody to stick around for this great interview with Dr. Michael Heiser. Let's uh, start off here with the basics. You can take your time and just... um, Tell us about the book and why you wrote it. Well, uh, the facade was born in what would have been the first year of my uh, doctoral dissertation work. After I got through my coursework in grad school, I was pretty honestly burned out by the whole experience. And that was kind of normal in our department. We had guys that would just go you know, remodel their house or build an antique car, you know, do something crazy for a year. And and I wanted uh, to, I I needed a distraction. And so I'd always wanted to write a novel, try my hand at fiction. And so this seemed like the perfect time to do that. I had the time, I didn't have to, you know, do anything for classwork or anything like that. So that was the context for it. And all along in, in grad school, I worked as a security guard. Uh, I actually had three or four jobs going through grad school, but that was one of them. And it's where I did a lot of my, my work because I worked third shift. I'm alone in a biotech firm. And, you know, it's overnight and there's nobody bothering me and I can sit there with, you know, with a laptop or whatever and, and do work. So I thought, you know, this is the perfect environment as well. And, you know, I'd had all this training. I, I always had an interest in paranormal stuff. I listened to Coast to Coast AM like every night for four or five years. And so I had a I had a real good handle as far as the, the, the kinds of things that people thought were interesting or like to talk about, no matter how goofy or bizarre they were. And, and I had always had a longstanding interest in UFO stuff uh, way back, you know, in my junior high age years. And it really became more serious in 1997 with the 50th anniversary of the Roswell event because I I heard a press conference, uh, the, the one that they held in Roswell that's now sort of famous or infamous on the Internet, where Colonel Haynes from the Air Force was giving what was then the Air Force's third explanation for the Roswell event. I'd done enough reading on the subject that I knew that this was the third explanation and, uh, you know, is there going to be anything new here? So I listened to it. And that was the interview where uh, an intrepid reporter in the back of the room said, well, Colonel Haynes, you know, how can the how can the crash test dummies or whatever they were calling them, the Air Force dummies, be an explanation for the reports of bodies, you know, at the Roswell crash or, you know, the events associated there therewith? I mean, how can that be an explanation since the Air Force in its own previous report acknowledged that they only used these dummies beginning in the early 1950s? So the Roswell event occurred in 1947. Well, when he said that, I thought that the colonel would say, oh, I misspoke, you're right, You know, let me correct myself here, but he didn't. He actually said, no, that, that's correct. And then the reporter said, well, how does that work? And his, his answer is now you know, sort of, again, famous or infamous, depending on your perspective. He said, well, we think that all the witnesses to the Roswell event underwent some sort of time compression he actually said this, you know, I have the transcript of the interview and I'm like, what in the world is that? 
And of course, the reporter's like, "What? You know, what? What is time compression?" <laughs> and he goes on to explain, "Well, we we think that all the witnesses thought you know, they were." What they're remembering, they they placed mentally back in 1947, what was actually the early 1950s. And I'm thinking, you know, there there are a few hundred people that have said something to some UFO researcher that's been published in some book about the Roswell event. And the idea that all of them could simultaneously be getting the year wrong, not to mention the fact that we have newspapers from the Roswell Daily Record dated to July 2nd and so on from 1947, how in the world can this be considered at all coherent? It was such a stupid answer that I thought sitting there at my desk, you know, late at night, like I always did, you know, while in grad school, working on my stuff and listening to Coast, I thought, you know, they must want this myth perpetuated. There's just no other explanation because this is so stupid. They must want it to survive. They must want the conspiracy for some reason to keep life. And so that you know, became kind of the genesis for, hey, I'll bet I could marry this mythology to ancient studies, to biblical languages, to the whole ancient astronaut you know, nuttiness. And I bet I could marry all these things together in a, in a pretty cool story. And so by the time I hit around, you know, another year or two, when I hit my dissertation phase, that was the perfect time. And I just said, I'm going to do this and, you know, we'll sort of see what comes out. So that's how the the book itself was born. Now, as far as the book itself, um, how would you describe it? I I talked about it in a recent podcast and I described it as uh, (laughs) sort of like a doctrinally correct Da Vinci Code meets the Andromeda (laughs) strain meets com. How would you describe it, and, and how would you sort of give us the thumbnail on the, the back of the book cover of the book? Yeah, well, the, the way I usually describe it is that the, the, the story is propelled by two sort of issues or two centerpieces, if, if something can indeed have two centerpieces. Um, one is the, the, the whole question of if there really was presented to us a, a, a genuine extraterrestrial reality. I mean, something that is just, you know, brought to the public, NASA fesses up or whatever, something that's put forth that that really appears just undeniable. How would that impact traditional, you know, Bible-believing Christianity and even, you know, real serious conservative Judaism? I mean, how would would that, you know, affect things? What would that do to, to the faith? And so the, the main character, you know, who's essentially me, and the reason he's me is because I'd never done fiction before, and I had to have one guy, I had to have one character in the book that I knew. <laughs> so that that's, you know, sort of what went into that. But I, I thought, this character is going to get confronted with something that makes him ask this question. And he's a believer, he's a Christian, and how, how would he handle this? You know, what, what would happen? So that's one issue that the book revolves around. And of course, as the story goes on, there are certain things that happen and certain uh, people that, that sort of interject other ways to think about you know, where we're at here in the storyline. And that the, the second sort of centerpiece is, well, what if this thing that we've been told is an extraterrestrial reality really isn't? What if it's something else, and what if it's sinister? What if it's bad? Uh, and so I use that to get into, again, the whole uh, ancient astronaut issue as far as uh, a connection, again, a, a possible or perceived connection with things like you know, demonic beings or whatever phrase you want to use, fallen angels, uh, corrupt Elohim. That that was my vehicle to get into this thing with the Divine Council, which was my is my academic specialty. Uh, really, you know, the unseen world and in the ancient Israelite and Semitic mind and all that kind of stuff. So that was the the axis by which you know I could get into that issue. So I'm really covering both of those items, and the characters you know are, are sort of you know tossed back and forth. You know, well, what do we think? Do we think this or that? And then they'll change their mind, and something else will happen. And so I wanted to take the reader through all of that stuff with a story, 
and that that was the ambition you know, to the novel, what I was trying to do. Yeah, and I, you accomplished that too. I, I'm going through the book. I'm I am experiencing. Or I'm done with the book now, but while I was going through it, I experienced that tossing and turning, like, okay, where is he going with this? You know, and and it really was uh, a really thrilling book. And that's sort of where the next question is kind of going. I was actually really surprised by how captivating it was, and I wasn't. I guess I wasn't really expecting. It. I think I've read everything that you've written in your in your academic work, or at least a lot of it. Um, had you had any training in this kind of writing before? Or are you a big novel reader? What what's the what's the deal with that? No, I I, I read almost no fiction, and I'd never tried it before. Um, I what what I basically did was I I. I charted out the whole book, so I, I knew sort of what I wanted to happen and, and when, basically, um, and why. You know, what the why was was always a, a critical consideration. But I essentially would, would take every scene, every chapter, and just, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, play it in my head. I mean, just like, what would it look like if I was watching this on TV? And, you know, who's saying what, who's looking at who, you know, just to try to convey what it would look like if it were a movie, again, or you know, television show or something like that. So that was how I approached it, you know, because I'd never actually done anything like it before. Uh, so it was kind of kind of simplistic, but I, I think, you know, I think overall, you know, it it, it works pretty well. I mean, I I think the plot is good, and I, I was very serious about that. There's there's something in the front of the book for for people who haven't read it where I say, hey, you know, alert to readers, everything in here is real except, you know, for the storyline. So all the technologies actually exist, all the ancient texts are genuine, all, you know, I go down the whole list and basically to, to make the point, all the data points in this book are real. What isn't real, of course, is the story, the characters, and the way I connect the data points. That's that's the fiction. And I, I've, I've had people... You know, I, I had a friend call me after he read the novel and ask if my parents were still alive, you know, because <laughs> because the main character's parents, you know, had, had been had been murdered, you know, in the uh, in the book. And, it, you know, there were just things like that that I, I tried to really, you know, make a lot of the book real. And when I get calls like that or emails, you know, I, I think, well, you know, I, this must have worked because people who do know me are wondering if I experienced any of these things. And even people who <laughs> right. don't know me, I've, I've gotten emails like, okay, you know, come clean, you know, did any, has anybody in the government ever talked <laughs> to you or briefed you or I've had things happen since the book that are, that are interesting, but nothing that, that led to the book, you know, in, in that way. Let's talk a little bit about that, since there is a lot of, uh, as you say, data points that are in the book, and there are some of them that I know that the listeners will find interesting, particularly the Roswell event. Um, if you don't mind, if you could just sort of take us through your view of what happened on that uh, fateful day in 1947. Okay. I'll, I'll summarize it for, for people who want a little bit more. If they go to my website, which is the, the redirect is dr msh.com so dr drmsh.com on the front page there there's some there's a link to the Roswell myth or the Roswell mythos and if they click on that they can get some documentation here my view of what happened at Roswell is that it, it's it's not a weather balloon it's not you know a hoax or anything like that it, it was it was a real event and it was a, an event of of high secrecy but i think it was basically a paperclip screw up that uh, for those who are not familiar with Operation Paperclip, um, the the Roswell event derived out of that government program. Paperclip was a program that began under Harry Truman, under the Truman administration, whereby we solicited, captured, or cajoled, or however it worked. You know, each case would have been different, but we brought Nazi scientists over to this country, and we also brought Japanese uh, war criminals uh, over to this country to work for us, you know, to tap into their expertise. We had a lot of the German rocketry people. Uh, that's sort of the, 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 the part that if people know about Paperclip, they usually associate Paperclip with the rocketry program. 
<clears throat> there's also another side to it. Uh, we, we brought a lot of psychologists over here too, which is something I'm going to develop in the sequel. But we bring them over, we clean up their records, we give them new lives and new identities, uh, and, and they work for us now. You know, obviously for the rocketry program that was important because a guy like Werner von Braun, who was a member of the Nazi Party, uh, came over here, contributed greatly to our rocketry technology. Others contributed, you know, to our experimentation with nuclear power and the atomic bomb and all this kind of stuff uh, that we were working on that was critical not only to winning the war eventually, but also our, our the military-industrial complex and, and our technological growth in other areas. But, you know, a lot of these guys were party members. You know, the, the, the Truman said he didn't want anybody over here that had that was guilty of war crimes. But eventually, and this is where the project gets its name, eventually there were people running the, the project that realized hey, you know, we're missing a lot of the best people because of this limitation. And so what they would do is when they would get a file on someone that they were really interested in, and they, they went through the file and they knew, well, this guy's going to get weeded out because, you know, of his associations with this or that, they would put a paper clip on the file, so that, and that was a signal to the next person down the chain to pull that one and basically clean it up, give this guy a new identity, you know, get rid of the bad stuff, and then put him back into the chain, and he, you know, he, he becomes someone that we can bring over here. Well, Truman didn't know that, so so paperclip is a, is the classic illustration of a government program within a government program that not even the president knows about or knows how it's operating, and so. Once we get these rocketry guys over, I think they continued their research. There's a, there's a lot of documentation that the Germans were experimenting with wingless aircraft, again, what we would call a, a delta shape or even a flying saucer. And so I, I, I take documentation like that, the paperclip program and all this sort of thing, and you know put all that together and, and basically make the argument, and I think there is good circumstantial evidence for it, that what crashed at Roswell was was a Nazi saucer in effect. I mean, a, a Nazi craft, something that that grew derived from this earlier work uh, done in in Germany by the Germans that they continued over here, uh, and something went wrong. You know, they, they they had a crash and they had to cover this up. And the, the convenient explanation was a you know a flying saucer from outer space or something like that. Um, I think it was worth covering up for the people who did it, again, speaking you know, their language here and not, not endorsing it ethically. But they had to do this because how bad would it have been to discover that, hey, this is 1947, two years after World War II ended, and in Roswell, New Mexico, which is where a lot of our atomic stuff was guarded, okay, that, this was no you know, podunk outpost here. Uh, we have Nazis on the payroll. You know, they're they're working for us now instead of standing trial at Nuremberg or some other place. We're paying them to do this stuff. And they, they had been guilty of experimentation on human beings to test high altitude and you know assortment of other things. And, uh, after the facade came out, Nick Redfern wrote a book called uh, Body Snatchers in the Desert, and he developed the Japanese side of this uh, the, the, with specifically something called Unit 731 which was Japan's bio-warfare bio division, uh, which again involved human experimentation and even human vivisection, you know, autopsying people while they're still alive, um, you know, to, to test the effect of different pathogens and, and whatnot. And the, 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 the Japanese <clears throat> were using high-altitude balloons to have things drift over the West Coast, you know, preparing for the day, experimenting with the idea that they could drop bioweapons on the West Coast of the United States and wipe out large segments of the population. Uh, some of those balloons actually made it over here. It was called Operation Fugo. And so what, what Nick uh, speculates, and again, I have a little bit of this in, in later editions of the facade, is that you know, they married the paperclip German technology with the high-altitude balloon stuff, and they, you know, had to have a human pilot, or at least they wanted to test the effects of human piloting on these things, and that explains the bodies. And you know, there's again circumstantial evidence for something called Operation Sunshine, where uh, the military used again humans to experiment 
you know, this is in our country, you know, after the war, during and after the war, you know, with high altitude, you know, programs and things like this, but all of this contributed to this thing we know as the Roswell event. And so I think it's a, it's a man-made object, but something that desperately needed to be covered up if you're the U.S. military. Yeah, and there's a lot of documentation in the uh, associated with the book as well, uh, bibliography there that you can check some of this stuff out. You've also done some presentations of this with some more details uh, that explain a lot of why the child casket situation and all the other stuff. So if people I, I are should, interested. Yeah, I, I should add that in the special edition uh, of the facade, and the, you know, people can get the special edition. I've updated a lot of the bibliographic stuff. Uh, and I've annotated it. So it, it, there, you not only get access to resources that you can you know, get for yourself, but I have a little bit of a description uh, along with that stuff as to why it's important and so on and so forth. Well, continuing on that line, um, the, the, the idea of the, the spacecraft uh, in, the, in the book seems to suggest a high uh, technology that, is, uh, that the government or certain elements within the government have, mm -hmm. um, what kind of argumentation would you give uh, in that regard? Well, I, I, what I did there was I took experiments in what is not really accurately called uh, zero, zero gravity or, or, or non-gravity or defeating gravity. It's actually more, more technically precise to call it gravity modification. But there are there are experiments with round disks that are small, for instance, that are people can go on the web and, and see uh, that, that NASA, specifically at, in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, experiments designed to you know use this shape and and electrogravitic you know technology to make a a disk you know float or levitate and, and defeat gravity or modify gravity in its path. And so I, I, I took that existing technology and said, you know, hey, you know, if they can do it with an 18-inch circle, you just build a bigger circle, you add more energy, and look what you get. You know, you, you get something that, again, that, that would approximate what a lot of people, you know, see or claim to have seen, you know, in the skies. You know, these round objects that do these ridiculous maneuvers, and, and how could they do them if, if, you know, under the rules of gravity, wouldn't they disintegrate or blow up? And if anything's inside of them, wouldn't they die? Well, if you're modifying gravity, the answer to all those things is they would work. And no, that, that, that it wouldn't explode. It wouldn't disintegrate. So there is, again, actual real technology uh, that the public knows is being conducted on a small scale. But what the public knows, of course, and what, you know, the military might be working on or might have worked on, for the last 50 years is another case altogether. I mean, the, the best example of that, of course, is the stealth. You know, this, the whole stealth program, the SR-71, and of course now the, the Aurora craft, again, the, the, the more triangular craft. There's also dirigible technology married to nuclear power, you know, with these large triangles. Again, that, that uh, information about these sorts of projects has leaked out again you know the the people who would be running the projects haven't said yep you caught us you know but you know there are things like this out there that are real and you know you sort of just have to fill in the gaps as far as how this might be being applied and for what purposes you know in our own military industrial complex hmm. on your blog ufo religions you you go through a lot of the the UFO lore and the different things that are out there, the the sightings. Right? I think you have one recently about the the Chilean uh, sighting. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that is sort of on the tip of your tongue, sort of the big things that you have uh, something to say about that are kind of around this area? I have crop circles here on my uh, on my list, but anything other than that or that particularly? Well, I think there there are cases. I would I would answer that question this way. There are cases that you know, really are, are puzzling, really defy sort of what, again, is, is publicly known about flying technology. And even a lot of people within the military, what they know. Um, I, I don't think for a minute, though, that military personnel who, you know, might be retired or maybe still in, you know, some capacity serving, uh, that they know uh, all the things that there are to know you know, in this area, in, in, in the black budget world, 
that sort of thing. So I, I think some of them come forward and they're being honest and they say, well, all the stuff that I saw, I never saw anything like that. I think, you know, I'm not going to say that they're lying, but I don't think that there's any way for them to be honest and say that their knowledge is comprehensive in all these areas, because let's face it, the only thing that makes people think about aliens when they have some sort of sighting or when there is some sort of anomalous sighting, again, that, that gets put under consideration for, you know, what is that? You know, we, we, we can't explain it. The only thing that makes people think alien is the technology. In other words, they'll see a craft or an object do something, and according to their knowledge base, the objects that they know of that fly through our skies can't do that. And so, therefore, it must be non-human technology. Well, that, that is a non sequitur. Okay, that, that's a logical leap. That would become a credible answer if we knew that aliens actually existed somewhere. I mean, if, if, we, if we were armed with that fact and it was indisputable, then when we see something flying around the sky that just doesn't conform, again, to our, in our minds, it doesn't conform to what we know about physics and physical objects, if we knew that aliens were real, then that would get on the table. Well, maybe it's an alien craft. Maybe they're visiting for a while or maybe, you know, something like that. But what, what usually happens is some bizarre thing will be seen and the idea of aliens, which itself is not proven, is used as a proof for that thing I saw being extraterrestrial. So you actually try to prove something with an unprovable thing, which is just logically ridiculous and logically fails every time. It's a non sequitur. It's a conclusion that does not follow, again, because the evidence you're using for it is also inconclusive or unproven. But, I mean, that, that's a human thing, I guess, to do. Uh, I would say, hey, why don't we entertain the fact that since we do have humans here on the planet, we know they exist, and we know that humans are, are capable of quite startling technological developments, and we know that all the stuff that is being worked on, technologically speaking, the public doesn't know. And even within the military, you know, again, we have historic precedent for there being projects that only a, a few people in the world actually knew about. We might want to consider that this weird thing we're seeing is human in origin and operate with that assumption until we know with confidence that we can bring aliens to the table because we know that they really exist somewhere. Again, this, I just try to take people, again, on, on the website through these options to, to help them sort of parse these kinds of questions. Again, I, I, I'm not antagonistic uh, on UFO religions. I don't, you know, try to shoot at people or tell, you know, say people who report this kind of stuff are lying and they're hoaxing. And, I mean, that, that happens. But there really are things that we need to think about. There really are cases that are anomalous. And I'm just suggesting that before we jump to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, you know, we might want to consider a different explanation. And we also need to be honest about the extraterrestrial hypothesis. It, it, it doesn't really get on the table until it becomes part of known reality itself. So I, I just try to get people to think about that because what, what usually happens is that and, and I understand this because I'm fascinated with the whole ET thing, you know, aliens and outer space and all that kind of stuff. But people latch onto that and it becomes a thing that is used either consciously or unconsciously to redefine theism, to redefine, you know, what we think of in terms of God, you know, to to displace or replace God. And then it, that redefines who we are and why we're here. And all these big picture questions. I, I, I love doing this. I love going to UFO conferences because frankly, those people are predisposed to talk about big picture questions. Who are we? How do we get here? Why are we here? You know, what, what out there that isn't human can we relate to? Is there a God? And what, what, how would we understand God? And, in other words, they're usually not materialistic atheists. I mean, they're, they're usually willing to entertain something bigger than us. And I think it's fertile ground you know, to discuss the Bible and theology and things like that. Hmm. Agreed. And, you know, this idea of, of 
exploring other options before we go to the extraterrestrial uh, option. <clears throat> Four things like, you know, my my thought about crop circles would include something like that, like a space-based laser would certainly be, or the microwave idea yeah, is certainly I, a possibility. I think crop but, circles are, are largely man-made. Um, again, I'm, I'm not willing to say that you could explain every one by that, but I'm, I am willing to say you could probably explain 99 point whatever percent of them. In, in but the, waves, the pro- microwave thing, I think, is a good, you know, uh, it is viable. That should be on the table. Right, and it would explain a lot of the anomalies. But my point is that um, if we say something like that, then we actually have to deal with another problem that comes up. There seems to would would then be some sort of concerted effort or intentional effort to deceive people to make it think make mm-hmm. us think it's aliens because these are pictures of aliens. They are you know humanity you know morphing into a butterfly. <clears throat> obviously talking about the evolution concept. So we're dealing with something that I think your book goes into a great deal of uh, uh, spends a great deal of time on. Um, what would you say about that? If this is true, that there would seem to be a deception that's trying to get us to believe that, where could we go with that? Why why would that be the case? And And do you see that? Yeah, the the, the facade, again, really confronts people with the notion, the idea that that all of this stuff, this alien stuff, is, you know, has great potential to be a complete deception, not a hoax, but a deception by an intelligent evil. A, a real uh, existing uh, evil that has a plan and a purpose, uh, has humanity in its crosshairs, that sort of thing. So that's putting the idea on the table. The, the sequel will actually get into, again, my, I'm going to try to share my thoughts on, on what it all means. Okay, what, what, what is the point? What, what's the specific uh, end game? And, and, and even the structure of this deception. So what the facade puts on the table, the, the sequel, which, which is entitled The Portent, uh, is going to sort of unpack and unravel. And again, it's just going to represent my, my take on, on all this sort of thing. So I think in general terms, again, without getting into specifics for the next one, I think the goal is twofold. I think that, that for those who are... Uh, unbelievers, and I mean not Christians, again, those who don't follow Christ, the, the goal is to make sure they don't and to, and to substitute something in its place and to, um, to redefine uh, the faith, again, the, the message of Christianity in such a way that embracing it will appear to be embracing Christianity, but will actually not be. I know that's very convoluted and kind of vague, and, and, I'm, and I'm doing that deliberately, but I want listeners and, and, of course, readers to know that when I address these sorts of topics, I, I don't do them simplistically. I think that this whole idea that, that the agenda is to create a, a new army of Nephilim, I think that's foolishness. I think it's cartoonish. Uh, ask yourself the simple question. Who would that fool? Who would that deceive? You know, if that ever comes out, are you gonna are you gonna think, oh wow, these are good guys now? I'm gonna you know really gravitate toward this and hallelujah. And, I mean, who is that gonna fool? It, I think the the agenda is far more subtle, is far more intelligent, is far far more exhaustive. What you want, if again, if I can think of, if I can play the evil genius here, what you want is to deceive people into believing they're doing something wholeheartedly, and yet they're not. They're actually doing the opposite. You trap them in their belief system, and in this case, you damn them with their faith decision. I think there is, there's a really good way to do that. <laughs> uh, there are several good ways to do that, but I think it's about preventing people from embracing the truth, and then people who have already embraced the truth. I think it's about having them surrender their faith in favor of this false thing. In other words, turning from Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and his son, Jesus Christ, to another God. But not knowingly. You still think you're, 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 you're picking the right side, but you're not. You surrender the faith. You fall into apostasy. You, you fall into 
disloyalty to the true God, but you don't know that you're doing it until it's too late. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and that's true for, you know, a macro eschatological or end times, you mm-hmm. know, scenario. And it's also true on a micro level, you know, just somebody starts to believe this instead of uh, believing any kind of biblical uh, theology. I mean, it's, it, it's, it happens every day, but it also has a uh, potentially much bigger use. Yeah, I, I will say this theologically. I, I don't believe that believers can sin away their salvation. You can't lose your salvation by committing some act of sin, even if it's a really bad thing, a really heinous thing. Uh, you know, King David, I think, is a pretty good example. You know, adultery and murder, and repentance was still available to him, and, and you know, the, the Lord embraced him. But I do think that the warning passages in the book of Hebrews and other places are real. They actually mean something. And they all focus on turning to unbelief. Okay? They're warning believers to not unbelieve. Okay, to not forsake their faith. Uh, you know, unless you're a, a high Calvinist or some sort of, you know, predestinarian to the extent that this is a totally deterministic, you know, life that we're living, uh, you have to have, you know, unless you don't have any sort of aspect of, of freedom in your theological system, you have to look at the warning passages in Hebrews and say, hey, they mean something. They're real. There, there was a concern here on the part of the inspired biblical writer. And the concern is that you remain loyal to Yahweh. Israelites who were quote-unquote elect, who followed other gods, were condemned to the exile and death. Okay? There, there was an outcome to that. And so, you know, nobody is going to be in heaven who does not believe. <laughs> that, that, that's how I answer that question about the, the, the status of my salvation. No one is in heaven who does not believe. No one is in hell who did believe. It's very simple. But it's profound at the same time because we've sort of been trained through pop theology to think, I prayed a prayer 20 years ago and now I'm good. Well, you know, if you're loyal to Yahweh, if you're loyal to, to Christ, if you really do believe, despite the fact that you've messed up your life in those 20 years since, if you really do believe, if, if that's what, where your loyalty is, yes, we'll see you in heaven. If you believe something else, or you don't believe anything at all, I'm not going to see you. No one is going to, I'm not going to find anybody in heaven who doesn't believe the gospel. And if we can, again, for the sake of, of the, the fictional sequel, the sake of what I think that the, the point of the deception is, if we can get people to think they believe one thing, but they're actually changing their loyalty to something quite contrary, then it's game over, uh, you know, for, for that, you know, situation. I mean, again, I don't want to share any, any specifics as to how I think people's minds could be turned. That's what I'm trying to do in the sequel. How would you do that? How would you pull that off? So, and, and, and not just in a cartoonish, again, fictional way, but, but what would need to happen? <clears throat> or what, what is one thing, what is, what is one path that if these events happen could conclude with this kind of situation? And so that's what, I'm, what my ambition is to, to communicate in the sequel. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to, uh, to get a sense of that or where you're going with it in the, in the book that's available now. And it's amazing because there is uh, there's a lot of agreement in the sort of counterculture um, that that we know and sort of frequent. And I wondered as I was reading this, I was like, hey, this is you know what I thought I came up with and was doing a you know presentation at a conference about and thought I was doing good and was like, okay, Michael Heiser wrote this, uh, you know, whatever, twelve years ago. So I was thinking, you know, I wonder how much your work has influenced this counterculture. And my question to you would be, is is it is it where you want to be? I know you probably have a passion to 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 you know uh, combat the deception that's out there. Are you accomplishing that goal? Do you want? Do you have a lot more um, uh, drive to continue to do that? That's really a good question. I've done a lot of interviews. I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. <laughs> um, 
I guess the short answer is I I think I'm doing you know some good in that direction. I mean, I I I have to think that. I mean, a lot of people come to the website. I, I do get you know occasional email that will will tell me that. I get lots of email, but usually it's not you know that quite that specific. But I do get that. Um, so I think yeah, something's being accomplished in that direction. I want it to be accomplished. Uh, my own assessment of of wh why I'm alive, <laughs> you know, why I'm still here, why why God put me on the particular path that he did and where I'm sitting now. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I, there are, well, I can't be too general here. I want to say that, that there's, there's this inner pang in every scholar to want to be actually useful. <laughs> um, because a lot of, a lot of the stuff that, that scholars do, never filters down to anyone except people in the in the guild, you know, people who are their peers. I, I've I've always really felt the need and the urge to take what it is I do, whether it's piggybacking theology and biblical studies onto fiction like this, like the facade and its sequel, or whether it's just doing biblical studies in general or whether it's doing biblical studies and all this ancient language stuff in, with an apologetic bent you know, against a really terrible idea like ancient astronauts. I, I, I want it to filter down to the normal person. Okay, the, and normal person, what I mean by that is the non-specialist, the people that, that just would never go into any of this stuff for a career or, or a sustained interest. I, I want what I do in those areas to be digestible, to be of some use. Uh, I I really have I, I'm, maybe it's my blue collar background, but I really have a hard time with scholars who do scholarly stuff just to do it for themselves and their friends, and essentially that the, the public can, you know, take a short ride to you know hell or something like that. I mean, it just they just don't care. They don't even even Christian um, scholars will often do things with with no thought i mean i i, I know them i know hundreds of, of scholars in all sorts of fields and there there are a lot of them that just just do things with no thought of well how would the lay person use this you know how, how does it better their thinking or how does it relate in some practical way to their christian life a lot of what happens in scholarly circles just just doesn't even get there and and so i'm sort of driven by by maintaining some connection to the reality of the normal person and the reality of the normal believer so that something I do, you know, there's some element of it that's useful uh, in some way, either to help someone think better about something, to help, you know, in some point of apologetics or whatever it is. So that's what I hope I'm doing. I, I, think, I think there's evidence that that's happening. I don't really have a feel for the extent, but I'm content that it's happening, but I, I'd like to have it happen with great frequency and more. And, you know, I more or less just leave that up to God. So I, I, we, we do what we do here, and I operate alone, really not by choice. I mean, it'd be wonderful to have help, but I'm not going to let that deter me from wanting to stay connected again to the to the non-specialist audience, because I do think it's useful, and I do think people will benefit from it. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's something that are a lot of people out there that are certainly coming out of um, a lot of the New Age stuff and whatever. It's the rock that they're, you know, at least before they figure out anything else, they're like, okay, well, this is true, and, and there's so much, uh, so many papers that you have out there that are spe two specific things. I remember reading one that you did on Graham Hancock a long time ago, and that really it really got to me because I was sort of getting into some of that at the time. And um, I'm just looking at your papers right now, one on the Bible code myth, one on, um, you know, a number of different things. Does Jesus allow for reincarnation? That's not something that, you know, people are probably writing papers about that, you know, on some of those, some of those passages, but you knew that there was a problem and a need and you were essentially just filling that need. Let me mention real quick too that for people that are more interested in your uh, in your work on the divine council or your scholarly work, that uh, maybe a, a, the the other book, the myth that is true, where where is that in in terms of publication? 
<clears throat> well, it, it's it's uh, happily drifting in limbo <laughs> right now. I mean, the, the, the first draft exists. Uh, I had years ago um, had people subscribe to a newsletter, and I used the newsletter to, to, to force myself to work on that book. Uh, again, the, the the book is essentially the a, a divine a biblical theology uh, of the divine council. It's 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 a divine council worldview uh, for the interested non-specialist. Um, the story, the the biblical epic, you know, that that really revolves around the intersection of the unseen and the seen world. That that's that's the biblical story in essence. So covering both testaments. Well, I you know I I kept at this it, it, it is now complete as of last January so people can uh, purchase the full first draft it's not edited but it hasn't gone anywhere you know from that point now internally here where I work my employer is Logos Bible software there are I have readers uh, in here who are at different levels of the company but some that you know are high levels of management in the company that want to see that turned into at least uh, a digital book, you know, for, for us. And so I, I would imagine that at the very least that will happen. And that may eventually spawn a, a print, you know, version of, of the book. But I, I don't really know because it hasn't sort of fallen anywhere on the, uh, in the workload yet. Uh, it, needs a, it needs a serious content edit. Of course, it needs a serious copy edit. But people can get it as it is. And I think people have been helped by it. So... Uh, you know, there it is for anybody who's interested. So I, I'm not I'm not leaving it. Uh, I, I do want it to become, you know, a, a book you could walk into your bookstore and get, or or order it on Kindle or or Verso or you know some other electronic format. Uh, but you know, I haven't revisited it yet. I'm, I'm on to the sequel now, and that that's essentially just all I frankly really care about anymore. <laughs> You know, well, uh, I just knew I, I, one, I, once I jumped into that, everything else was just going <laughs> to, you know, fade away. <laughs> well, speaking of the book, um, you wrote that book, um, as you mentioned, when you were before you did your dissertation, mm -hmm. and so you've had a lot of time now to to deal with uh, all kinds of stuff and and people talking and criticisms and about different things. Would you change anything about the facade in any way if you were to do it again? Uh, I wouldn't change any of the content. Uh, no, no. I mean, I, I, I could always, I could say it could always be better, you know, in, in terms of the writing, you know, with the rewrites. But I wouldn't change any of the content. What about the sequel? You mentioned that a few times. When, what, what kind of time frame are we looking at there? I, I just, I don't know. I, I would, I would hope. What month are we in here? This is, we're almost in December. It would be nice to think that. You know, people could be purchasing the the sequel, you know, for Christmas next year. Uh, that that's possible again at, at at the rate that I imagine to be workable. But you know, the 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 brutal reality is with the facade. I wrote that in six months because I had large chunks of time to do it. I don't have that anymore. Uh, I, I have at the most one to two hours a day uh, to write anything. And now, you know, other than the blogs, I'm, I'm still trying to, to, to blog once a week on, on each of the three blogs at least. But other than that, I have one or two hours a, a day to devote to the sequel. And if I do that, you know, then, then that's a realistic timetable. Uh, it, it, it's difficult to do that. I, I, I am pleased, though, to, to say, and just experientially, I really doubted whether I could produce something like the facade in small increments of time like that. But that has not been an obstacle. Uh, I'm, I'm about a third of the way into the sequel, and it, it has not been difficult, despite the fact that the, the, the times I can actually sit down and do it are abbreviated. So I've been able to, to really not even think about that. It, it has not been an issue. So with the with the updated book the one that's available now can tell people how to get it and then what is what is special about the update well the, the update they can get uh, in a variety of, of places uh, the easiest is to go to uh, my website drmsh.com 
And on the front, they would be taken to the website for the book. The, the direct website is uh, www.facadethebook.com, F-A-C-A-D-E, thebook.com. Uh, you can also get there through a redirect, readthefacade.com. So you can get there on my blogs. You know, if there's something on the blog, if there's a tab about the facade, of course, they can go there, too, and get it. Um, what was the second part of the question again? What is uh, uh, different about the update? What's different about the update? Well, the, up, the special edition contains uh, an anna the annotated bibliography uh, complete with uh, you know updated resources. And the resources are books. They're scholarly articles. They are digital tools, you know, digital website, you know, stuff like that. So that's all been updated and annotated. It contains a, a, a two or three page uh, story of how the facade was born, complete from. I mean, we we stopped our discussion here with you know why and when I decided to sit down and write it. But there's a whole sort of series of, of episodes leading up to the facade actually getting finished and winding up on coast to coast AM and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's a little bit of a background story there. And lastly, the first five chapters of the sequel are in the back in the special edition. Um, okay, so I guess in wrapping up here, what is the best way that people can interact with some of the stuff that you're doing? Can you talk about some of the different blogs that you do and, and what, you're, what you're doing with those? Sure. My, my main uh, gateway, again, is drmsh.com. If you go to that site at the top, there's a list of my websites. There's one for the Divine Council. It's thedivinecouncil.com. There's my website devoted to Zechariah Sitchin's Ancient Astronaut Silliness. That's sitchinisrong.com. Uh, there, there are other ones up there. Uh, they're also at the top of that, my homepage, drmsh.com. There's a list of my blogs. My blogs are called Paleo Babble. Uh, that's where I do weird stuff in the ancient world uh, that people you know, say, like the ancient astronaut material. Uh, the Naked Bible is where I focus on biblical studies, and then UFO religions is where I focus on uh, thinking about UFOs, extraterrestrials, and how that influences people's worldview and their faith and their religion, that sort of thing. So you can get to all of those things by going to drmsh.com. All right, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, and I want to encourage everybody to get the book. It really is a good read. It really is a, a something that, you know, the proverbial page turner, you won't be disappointed. So go to facadethebook.com. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I have done for free at nowheretorunradio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.